0: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to Open Book, where I talk with some of the most interesting and brilliant minds in our world today. In this show, I'll bring on guests in business, politics, entertainment, and more to go deep into a piece of their work, whether it's a highly anticipated book, an in-depth feature story, or an opinion piece that has captured my attention. We'll dig into why it matters to you and how their work is shaping our future. On today's episode, I talk with former managing director at Goldman Sachs, Jamie Fiore Higgins. Whether you keep up with the world of finance or not, everyone knows the name Goldman Sachs. Goldman is synonymous with all things that are admired, but also potentially disgraced about Wall Street. I began working there as an investment banker in 1989. I was fired 18 short months later, and then I was rehired into the sales area before leaving in 1996. I learned a lot there about teamwork and culture, and I thought it was a very compliance-centric organization, and I took that compliance centrism with me when I started my businesses. However, not all things are perfect, not at Goldman or any other place. Jamie Fiore Higgins is a former managing director at Goldman, a level reached by only 8% of the employees there. She spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs. Her new book, Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. Uh, when I read this book, I knew how to reach out to Jamie and talk to her about it. I think she was, frankly, surprised by that because the goldman playbook is to ignore it and the goldman playbook is to put this into the sand and to dissuade people from bringing it up and if you do bring it up you'll be ostracized and or canceled by goldman i got that but i think In a contrarian way, I think it would have been way smarter for Goldman Sachs, uh, at least the senior management there, to have read this book and said, wow, we got a problem. Let's bring Jamie in and let's see if we can get her ideas and advice on how to solve this problem. Now, cynics listening to this podcast would say, well, they can't do that because their lawyers told them not to do that. And their crisis PR people told them, look, just ignore the book and it will go away. Uh, But if you have that level of a persistent problem, ignoring it is not going to make it go away. If anything, it will resurface in a more ugly form. Uh, Also, in this conversation, Jamie talks candidly about her time at the firm. Frankly, she loved the firm, but she also talks about the ugly side of it, the harassment, the intimidation, the hush money, the drugs, the affairs, why her book was only the greatest hits of what really goes on. And so burying the head in the sand, oh, that's been a two decade, perhaps three decade strategy. But I am absolutely convinced that that dam is breaking and it will be better for all of us in larger, small corporations, big and small businesses to address these things head on. Okay, now look, I am not a woke person. Uh, Some of the people on the left who are woke, they describe me as somebody as being in a coma. Forget about woke or not. Uh, But the truth of the matter is I just want to treat everybody equally and treat everybody fairly. I often tell people at Skybridge, you're going to be paid fairly, not equally. And I'm going to treat you fairly, not equally. So it doesn't matter your skin color, your sexual orientation, your gender. If you're doing the work, you're going to get paid a lot of money. And if you're not doing the work, we're going to either ask you to leave or pick it up and knock it off. But I think that plain type of speaking is very hard to do in a corporation because people are so sensitized to the potentiality of lawsuits. So Jamie and I discuss a lot of that. How the fear of Goldman, Mother Goldman. All roads lead back to Goldman. We have governors that are from Goldman. We have former secretaries of treasury that were from Goldman. We have Federal Reserve governors from Goldman, IMF leaders, et cetera. All roads lead back to Goldman. And so people do fear potential repercussions from Goldman. I'm actually saying the very opposite, even though I'm an alumnus there and I love my experience at Goldman, this podcast is about making things better. And the only way you can make something better is acknowledging that there is a problem. So Jamie and I get into that. And I will say this about Jamie. There are women still at the firm that are saying thank you to her. Thanks for speaking for me because I can't. And what a shame that is, actually, because those women are sitting there in that sort of Faustian trap where they want to make the money and do great things in their corporate or professional careers, uh, but they're also afraid to speak out if they're not being treated fairly, and that's a big shame, and hopefully this will lead to the process of them being able to seek reform and fairness. And by the way, this is not just a problem at Goldman Sachs or Wall Street. This is a problem all over the world, and you only need two people for that matter to have this sort of power dynamic, and Jamie and I discussed that as well. Jamie Fiore-Higgins. I got to tell you, I admire you for writing the book because this had to be a difficult thing to write. You and I both know I'm an alumnus of Goldman. Goldman is everywhere. We just uh, talked a little bit about that in the green room. And you know that there's some rough alpha male nonsense that goes on on Wall Street. Let's get right into it. What inspired you to tell the story?
1: I left Goldman with zero intention to write a book. And what inspired me was I had this amazing opportunity to spend time with my kids, which I had never really had a chance before. And people would ask me why I left work at 40. Usually you don't see people who kind of leave at the height of their career. And I would just tell them little anecdotes. And don't get me wrong, at the time I knew the experiences were kind of inappropriate, but seeing someone outside of Goldman react to what was happening with me, made me see it in a whole new light. And not only was I a victim of this kind of toxic workplace, but then I really perpetuated it too. I didn't help other people where I could have, and so for me, writing the book is to really shine light on what powerful organizations do to people. And I wanted people to understand that not only can people be victims, but they also could be perpetrators. And you know, I definitely know that in in the height of the Me Too movement. I was part of some women's Me Too stories, and I'm not proud of that, but I felt like it was really important to talk about all sides of the story to really shine light on how money, power can affect
0: people. You write about it in the book, so I want you to elaborate it. When you say that you were part of other people's Me Too stories, go a little deeper. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. In a lot of ways, and I loved it, I was a mentor to these women, especially as I grew up in the organization. I started right out of undergrad. I got married. I had kids. I was kind of the poster child for the Goldman Sachs working woman, even before I made managing director. And so women would flock to me. How do you do it? How do you manage it? And I reveled in that role. I loved it. But then what would start happening is women would come to me with real problems who made them feel uncomfortable, who harassed them sexually, the woman who turned down someone's advances and then all of a sudden her book of business suffered. And so I would help them. I would try to navigate it as best I could. And then when I would go to bat for them with management, I was told time and time again, listen, you can go to HR on their behalf, but you're going to pay the price for that. So at the end of the day, I helped them to a point. And then when push came to shove and it was between my career, their career, I chose my career. So I didn't help them.
0: Okay. It's very revealing and it's very honest. And I appreciate you saying all that. But you also said something in the green room that I want to go back to. You said, you know, I'm surprised that you invited me on. So tell our viewers and listeners why you're surprised that I invited you on to talk about Bully Market. So
1: my setting was Goldman Sachs, though I've gotten feedback from hundreds of people that they recognize their story in different firms and different industries. But I'm not a fool. Goldman Sachs is everywhere. The governor of my state is from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is in D.C. Goldman Sachs is in Hollywood. Goldman Sachs is everywhere. Although I feel like I wrote a well-written and revealing book, I feel like a lot of people, I know a lot of people aren't taking the opportunity to talk about my story and have me on because of fear of repercussions from Goldman Sachs.
0: Yeah, so you're breaking the bro code inside of Goldman Sachs by talking about this, a result of which you're fearful of repercussions, but also people in the media would be fearful of repercussions given the power that Goldman has, right?
1: I'm not afraid of Goldman Sachs anymore. That's done. I spent 20 years of my life... In fear of what the mothership thought of me. I don't care anymore about that. What I'm observing is how many other people in this world are still fearful of Goldman Sachs. And because of that, might not want to associate with me in the book. And I understand it, Anthony, because... That was my life for so long. I found it interesting that so many different people in different aspects. I mean, I worked for Goldman, so there's no surprise that I was fearful of them. But it's amazing to me to see how people who, oh my gosh, so and so would love your book, Jamie. Oh, but you know what? A C suite executive from Goldman spoke at the annual conference. I don't think they're going to have me on. I don't think they're going to showcase my story.
0: Right. No, listen, I get it. I mean, I worked there. When I got there uh, in 1989, you know, I was a rite of passage for me as a blue collar Italian from Long Island. I was wearing polyester, 100% polyester suit when I was being interviewed. My mother thought that that was like the greatest outfit I could have ever had on. And one of the partners there told me I was dressed like a moron and go get some clothing at Brooks Brothers before he invited me down to the callback interview. This was up at Harvard Law School 33 years ago. When I got to Goldman, eventually got the job, uh, there was one woman partner. One of the Italian partners said to me, and this is an exact quote I'll never forget. He said, Hey, you'll never be partner here. And it was an Italian guy. I said, Why is that? He says, Well, there are five Italian partners here. One of us is gonna have to die to make you a partner. Okay, it's not and that's not gonna happen. So you should go you know, enjoy this for a few years and go on and build your own business. The firm was buttoned up and super conservative. I don't remember. The harassment, though, I'm just being honest about that. Only because in my area it wasn't happening. I'm not saying it wasn't happening in other areas. Oh yeah, and I'm it's not a saying, big
1: firm. It's a big firm.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's not proliferated. But this is the thing. Like when I talk to people, like. Shelly Zalas, she is part of the female quotient about creating more equal, fairer work settings and things like that. How corporations should be thinking about these things, you know, and, and here's the irony, OK? And of course, I could never be the CEO of Goldman Sachs for so many varying reasons. But if I read that book and I was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, I would be inviting you in and mm-hmm. I would be sitting down with you and my executive management team. And I would be like, okay, Jamie, help me figure out what we're doing wrong here so that we can change the culture and make the culture better. And I want to ask you that question after reading your book. Let's say I'm the CEO of Goldman. I've just invited you in. It's just you and me. And I said, Jamie, this is some really bad stuff that happened to you. You know, you were breastfeeding. People were saying moo. You only got mm-hmm. your promotion because of your vagina. You were nicknamed sister Jamie. Jamie. You know, listen, if you were my sister or my mom or my wife or my daughter, I'd be wickedly pissed off at these guys. Okay. Because it's Mm -hmm. totally inexcusable. And everybody knows the difference between charming and creepy. Everybody knows the difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you got to act a certain way. So, my question to you is you're sitting down with the CEO of Goldman. I want to make the place better. What do I do?
1: Have tangible action points. to all the things they say in the press releases in the employee handbook, meaning the lactation rooms are amazing. Everyone's afraid to use them, right? They hire 50% women at the analyst level, but less than 18% are partner. So to me, I think you have to marry the goals with actionable steps. So for example, I know my business was the way it was because it was profitable market share was huge. Profit margins were huge. It was kind of a set it and forget it. So no one really paid attention. The C-suite didn't walk the floors. So to me, if it's so important at Goldman, you know they have the people surveys because they want to make sure people are happy and all this stuff. That's great. That checks the box. How about having people walk the floors and really see what's going on? You care about diversity. That's great. Have the diversity goals at the hiring level. What about having a diversity goal at the partner and managing director level? There's never been anything concrete at that level. So they bring them in, great, but then they don't stay. Why aren't we looking into why they're not staying? I left Goldman Sachs. I didn't even have an exit interview after 18 years. So to me, I think there's very specific things. Also, HR. And listen, I know a lot of people who worked in the HR department at Goldman, and I know They really wanted to have a good experience with their employees, but management there cannot protect employees where they're subsequently being pushed around by the power of the profit centers. If HR were an independent body that were their own profit center by being a third party that contracted by Goldman, I think that they would look out for employees more as opposed to, I mean, in my story, when I finally went to employee relations, human resources to complain, I was outed the next day. And guess what? Those guys wanted a job working for my partner. So they basically sold me out to get to the money side because HCM human resources is a cost center, not a profit center. So I think there's very specific things you could do outsourcing HR. We have compliance officers at Goldman at the ready to make sure we're not going to be, you know, arrested by the SEC. What about culture officers to walk around and really make sure things are on the up and up specific retention goals. Because you're not going to have that true diversity of thought unless you have diversity from the bottom to the top. So I think there's a lot of specific things. And oh, my gosh, if Goldman Sachs invited me, I would be thrilled to go there.
0: Yeah, I think we have to flip these things around. Okay, so the old cultural identity is, oh, my God some bad things happened to Jamie. It's a one-off situation. That's not how the firm handles things. Let's ignore her and let's deep six this thing so it doesn't become a public relations nightmare. But the flip side is it could have been a public relations opportunity for the firm. They could have turned around and said, oh my God, that was the first thing I did. Okay. I have a mom, I have a wife, I have a daughter. Okay. I have a sister. First thing I got done reading your book I was like, okay, if I was in a responsible position there, I would want to know how to fix this. Okay, so let's go right to the beginning, if you don't mind. You have a chapter in the book on orientation. The doors were locked at 7 a.m. I remember this shit, by the way, so I'm, I'm with you I on know this. you do. Take us through your first day at Goldman, the excitement of it, but also... What was going on and what you were observing culturally?
1: Well, I couldn't help but smile when you were telling me about your polyester suit, because it was kind of similar. You know, I walk in my suit from TJ Maxx, my shoes from Payless. I had had to leave so early because I lived down in New Jersey out west, commuted two hours to get there. And Entered this world, mostly men, everyone very well-educated, but I was well-educated too. So the education though transcended the degree. It was like this awareness of a different culture that I hadn't been a part of. Those first couple weeks, oh my gosh, I mean... Doors locked at seven. So a very punitive environment. Right. And I'll never forget, you know, that first day, the banging on the door from the poor guys who were late, super late nights, you know, projects and then booze cruises and spa days and, you know, getting home at two in the morning and getting up at four a.m. to do it again. But what I also noticed was that so many people from Goldman were part of this culture of affluence I wasn't familiar with, kind of growing up, working class in New Jersey. They just kind of seemed to know how to interact with the partners, how to talk to them, the country clubs, the Broadway shows, that kind of like laissez-faire attitude. And so I felt so fortunate to kind of get this job after 40 interviews, but from a Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. That's what I felt. I was like, wait, something's off here. And not only just because I was a woman, because I just felt like I didn't grow up with the money that they had.
0: So you started Goldman Sachs nine years after me, but I had that same experience. I was a fish out of water. I had never hit a golf ball. I had never swung a tennis racket. You know, my parents had no money and that was fine. But there was definitely some secret handshakes that were going on. And there was definitely, well, I went to this school or I went to that school. By the way, I went to Harvard, okay, but I was a young boy in an old boy's network, and I didn't have any network to speak of, and I always felt like I was a little bit of an outsider inside the firm. Mario Gabelli, who became a dear friend, he's a money manager up in Rye, New York, Italian-American, he said, hey, man, you're going to have to shave the points off of your personality and not be you if you want to survive there. So go get a job or go start your own business. This way, when you're 50 years old, which is still a young age, you go work and uh, have a successful career. He gave me great advice. I left the firm at age 32, started my first business, uh, went on and sold that, and obviously created another business. I flamed out in the White House, but that's not for this podcast, okay? (laughs) Uh, We're talking about you, Jamie. So tell me about the diversity song. It's a song inside of Goldman Sachs about the diversity and the togetherness. And tell me about the reality that you wrote about Mm -hmm. in the book.
1: And it's a lot of what you talked about. It's a culture of not diversity, but assimilation. So they have all the right talking points about bringing in diverse population. Okay, and you can even argue I was a boon for them. I was a female managing director. But at the end of the day, Anthony, I was successful, not because I brought my own opinions and sensibilities based on my experiences to the table. It's because I assimilated with the corner office. And that's really, I felt, the key to success. So even when they bring in diverse populations, if you are, you have to sing the tune of the corner office. For me, it was even like I had to pretend I liked certain alcohol. I had to pretend to like certain hobbies, follow certain sports teams. And honestly, I would ask my husband, my husband had some experience sailing as a kid. So I was able to talk about sailing. I had to follow the jets and know how they played on Sunday, even though I had no interest in the jets, but it was all just trying to fit in. And yet when you brought your own interests to the table, they were like discounted. So for example, I always made my kids their Halloween costumes. My mom made mine. I always wanted to make their Halloween costumes. So every year I would take a day off, a vacation day, which I'm allowed, to make my kids Halloween costumes. One time I mentioned it to my boss. He was like, don't ever mention that again. So vacation day that we all learned. But yet... It was not a value that I wanted to do something for my family, but you could go, you could go use your, you know, vacation days to go golf in Ireland. That's perfect.
0: Okay. So, so go, go into that though. Cause I think there's an ethos there that's very true about wall street, right? There's a fraternity. Okay. It's not a sorority. We both know that. That's right. And it's a fraternity. And so certain things that are acceptable to a fraternity wouldn't be acceptable. Like you just right. said, what are, what are some other things that wouldn't be acceptable?
1: And the men suffered as well. Because there are some guys who wanted to go to the Halloween parade. They couldn't. Wanted to go to their kids. If the kids had a doctor's appointment, they couldn't. Then forget about wanting to actually pump for your kids and provide breast milk. Though the guys would leave every day in the middle of the day to get their wingtip shoe shined. And that was okay. So a lot of things around family, a lot of things around personal interest, if they weren't that bro culture, that football, scotches, whiskey bars, gentlemen's clubs, I was told to take all the pictures of my kids off my desk. Cut the class mom crap, Jamie. You're a commercial killer. Cut the class mom crap. So I literally took down all the pictures of my kids on my desk, but yet... The guys on the desk had Jets foam fingers, pictures of them on the ninth tee. So again, it's like, if that's your value, you're golden. And I even saw some of the guys pretend that was their values to fit in. In fact, I'll never forget this one guy who worked for me. His kids went to the same preschool as the partner. There was like a holiday concert. He wanted to go so badly, but he was afraid he was going to run into the partner's wife and be outed as that dad who goes to things. Cause the partner would brag that he didn't even know where his kid's school was. Right.
0: And it's, it's part of that machismo. I got it. I'm an alpha right. male. I'm a machismo and kids and, are for right. the wives right. and the
1: nannies.
0: So I had an incident at Goldman, which I still laugh about. I'm 27 years old. I'm at a partner's house for dinner. The partner asked me, hey, can I see you for a second? I get up from the table and we're walking into his powder room and the faucet is dripping. And he looks at me and he says, could you fix this for me? And I looked at him, I said- what do you mean? And then thought dawned on me, wait a minute, I'm Italian. I'm blue collar Italian. I must know how to fix the faucet. Meantime, I went to Harvard Law School, right? So I looked at him, I said, as a matter of fact, yes, tomorrow morning, I'll have it fixed for you. Okay. I called my cousin, Bobby, who is a plumber. I sent him to the guy's house. I paid for it, by the way, and I fixed the faucet. And I just left mm. it at that because mm. what was I going to do? Or what was I going to say to anybody? And it wasn't going to change, Jamie. So what do you say to the women or the guys that are wagging a finger at you? They're saying, oh, she outed us and that makes her a pariah. And these other women are much smarter than her. They're going to make a lot more money than her because they, they didn't out us. And they're towing the line. And there's women all over the firm that are doing what you wrote about in the book, where a woman comes to them and they say, hey, don't do that. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Or don't say that about that partner. That's going to cost your career. What do you say to those women that are wagging a finger at you saying, oh, you broke the bro code?
1: Mm. It's ironic because I've heard from hundreds of women, many at Goldman, saying, Thanks for speaking for me because I can't. So I think, although I'm the only one speaking, I'm not the only one with something to say. And I think for a lot of these women, they understand that in order to survive, they need to keep playing the game, even though they're not happy with the game. I just heard from a friend. Who is at a conference right now and she's like, Oh, they're going to the strip club tonight. So it's still happening and they can't say anything because they want to keep working. And listen, there are some people who are going to think I'm crazy because they're still, you know, they're still, they're still drinking the Kool-Aid there. In fact, you know, there's a Goldman Sachs class action lawsuit. When it first started, I was still at Goldman. I thought they were crazy because when you're in the thick of it, you don't want to see the truth because to see the truth, is to accept what you are doing and what you are tolerating. And that's scary. People don't want to see that. So for the people who think I'm crazy, I view them with some tenderness because I know they're stuck in it. And I know they can't get out.
0: I mean, it's it's incredibly powerful and it's very well said.
1: Things are changing. So I've been doing a lot of book clubs with my book. I had a woman in my book club. She worked at um, Kidder Peabody in the 80s. You should have heard her stories. So I think every generation, things are getting better. Do I think my book is going to change it 180? No. I mean, hey, if Goldman Sachs invited me in, maybe it would. But I think it's having people think about things. I've heard from a lot of men who are currently on Wall Street, one said to me, you know, Jamie, I don't think I am contributing directly to a toxic environment, but I don't think I'm looking up enough. And he called it the power of saying, knock it off. And he's like, I'm going to say, knock it off a lot more. And you know what, Anthony, if some of the guys who really were so difficult with me, maybe if someone had told them to knock it off 20 years ago, their behavior would have been tapered down.
0: You know, but some of that is they're repressed assholes, right? I mean, you do know that, right? I mean, they probably, forgive me for being so vulgar, but they probably had no action- in high school, okay? And they were these nerds. And so what ends up happening is now they got some power and they got some money and they're going to do a big flex on somebody because they're an attractive woman. A hundred percent. Do I have that wrong? I mean- No, no, listen. Listen, look at these guys. There's no way this guy got any action in school because look at the way he's acting now, you know?
1: Yeah, there's definitely some people who you can tell- are intoxicated with the power that they have because clearly they didn't have that type of autonomy in their childhood or their young adulthood. And listen, I'm not saying for, you know, the characters in my book that I talk about, did they read the book? Probably not. But I do feel like a lot of young people today want something different from their careers even the guys too. Do I think that my book is inspiring some conversation? Absolutely. I've had people reach out to me saying, you know what, who's head of DEI at a firm saying, wow, you know what, like, I think I have to pay attention a little more about what's going on the day to day in my businesses. So I'm hopeful that some people are inspired by some of the things I talk about in the epilogue and also just having a conversation about it. And if we bring light to these topics and talk about it and shift thinking, That's how you're going to see change. You got to shift some thinking first. You know,
0: I'm going to test something on you and I want you to respond. You didn't have an exit interview because Mm -hmm. they don't want to hear what you're going to say in that exit interview. And they don't want to be liable for what you're going to say in that interview. They got to record or write down notes of what you're saying. And so they want to have some level of plausible deniability. Do you think that that's true for most big corporations? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And also, too, if I had an exit interview, would I have let it rip? I don't know. What's the point then? It was too late. I had already tried. I had tried to use the Goldman Sachs system, right? I used employee relations. I used, you know, human resources. I lodged complaints. They had said, Oh, if you see something, say something. We want to know. But clearly in my experience, they didn't. So yeah, I do think the exit interview is a bit smoke and mirrors. And I probably most of the time people aren't really honest because what's the upside for them?
0: So I'm going to synthesize a few things at the same time because I'm I'm drawing from a couple different chapters in the book, okay? You were in the Goldman's Women's Network. You described that as being Mm -hmm. ferociously competitive among the women. You then became Mm -hmm. managing director. You described that as some of the men were pissed off at the fact that you had gotten Mm -hmm. it and they didn't. That was the vagina comment that you reference in the book. Take us through that odyssey. There you are. You're doing your job well. They're going to promote you you got guys that resent you and you have women competing with you.
1: You know, it's funny. It reminds me of what you said about being the only Italian and there's only so many of us. Goldman Sachs fosters this scarcity mindset amongst the women kind of what you experienced too. It's a zero sum game. So it's like, if I'm winning, you have to lose, which I think is funny because all the men seem to be doing well all together. Right? So when I got the position, not only are you saying, okay, well, she got it to fill a quota or she got it because she slept with someone. There is no appreciation or value that maybe I just got it because I deserved it. So you have that resentment from the men. And then amongst the women, I'll never forget at the Women's Network... All these women there, smart, successful women, partners, managing directors, up and coming VPs, they were all around the four guys in the room because there's a scarcity mindset that we cannot do well together. When it is set up that way, there is no way you're going to have women who help women. It's just not possible.
0: Let me ask you, you you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but you've revealed a lot of stuff. You're a very honest writer. Was there something so egregious that you left out?
1: There's it's it's interesting because, you know, I was talking to a friend and she had said, think about all the things you didn't put on, didn't put in the book. Um, You know, in terms of egregiousness, I mean, the assault was probably the most egregious thing because that was physical hands on me. But, you know, there were stories amongst the women. I mean, there was a woman who I'll never forget. I was at a big hedge fund meeting. It was one of my first ones and I was making a presentation and I did great. And then we were having drinks at the bar and she went into this whole monologue about my sex life, how I liked it, how I didn't like it, how I was approved sexual positions. It was so embarrassing. It was with this hedge fund PM. And I remember, you know, the next day, telling my manager. And he's like, this is Goldman. Like, this is like one regular. He would say, this is one regular. This is not, this is not a big deal. So constant aggressions like that. I mean, all the drugs, all the sex, all the affairs in my book, I kind of talked about the greatest hits, but there are just so many little anecdotes and stories and so many too stories about women who I didn't help. In fact, I heard from one a couple of weeks ago. She sent me a private message. Jamie, I'm really happy for your book. But if I'm brutally honest, remember when this happened and that happened and that happened. In fact, in the book, I talk about a guy. This was the gentleman who ended up assaulting me, who was having an affair with a client. And I told my boss about it. And he said to me, well, you could go to HR about it, but I'm not getting rid of this guy. Because he has something better than a 4.0 from Harvard, I say to the Harvard graduate. He was a scratch golfer. And so he was always protected. And so I didn't report it to HR. I've heard from two women since who went to HR with the same complaint because he was having an affair with a client and his wife started calling me. His wife called two other women. They went to HR. Within six months, their reviews went down. And within 12 months, they were fired. I've heard of more stories since I wrote the book because women have read my book and said, oh my gosh, the same exact thing happened to me. And I don't know why I got fired from Goldman. And this is now 10 years in the rearview mirror and they're still suffering from it.
0: You said a Goldman partner told you, I just want to get it right. You said that it was uh, the home of the most paranoid and insecure people, the Goldman Sachs partnership. What do you think he meant by that?
1: I think that after 18 years, it just shows that the culture is such that they put you in a constant state of anxiety, that every day you have to do better than the day before. It's because you're constantly told you're nothing without Goldman. It's because you're constantly told that if you don't perform, there's a line of people around the door who are gonna take your job. It's the way the compensation is structured. You're always working for that next bonus. The carrots are constantly dangled in front of you. And so in order to survive... And thrive. You have to be willing to accept that kind of environment. And I think the only people who do are paranoid and insecure people. I certainly was. I felt like I hit the lottery with that job coming from West New Jersey without connections, without money. My first year at Goldman, I mean, more than my parents. After 40 year careers.
0: Yeah. Well, that was me. My my father was making $32,000 a year as a crane operator. So I, I, I had quadrupled that, you know, my first year. Yeah.
1: And so you're feeling like you're not only working for yourself, but you're working for your family just to make them proud. I mean, that's all, all the sacrifices they made were for this opportunity. So for you to walk away from it. You're walking away from it for your siblings, for your parents, for your grandparents. Right. And so for me, I was that paranoid, insecure person. And that's how they like it, because that's how people
0: conform. There's an expression, these British women, they were meeting their husband sailors at the port uh, and they were back from whatever their expeditions were. And it's a very famous British expression Where these guys are coming home, they had scurvy, their teeth were rotting, and they were coming home, and they wanted to have sex with their wives. And the wives are looking at these guys saying, oh my God, these are like disgusting people. And there was an expression, lie still and think of England. Okay, and it's a very famous expression. You could go Google it, Mm -hmm. lie still and think of England, meaning put up with it, you know, for the sake of the country. What would you say to somebody that said to you, well, you sort of broke the contract. And so therefore they're going to be reluctant now to hire more blue collar people like you or me, because you didn't lie still and play the game that they were expecting of you to play. What do you say to those people?
1: Well, I mean, I did lie still for close to 20 years. Right. I mean, I have no intention to work on Wall Street again. Right. Are you suggesting that people won't take a chance on the Jamie Fiore of 2022 because
0: of me? Uh, Yes, I am. I'm suggesting that. Okay. But what I was really suggesting, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I was suggesting is I'm hoping that your book, is a beacon for people. I'm hoping that your book is an icebreaker for people. And I'm hoping that the response would be, yeah, you know what? I took it for 20 years, but it was impossible to take it any longer. Moreover, I'm hoping that the book will provide an opportunity for people younger than me coming into these businesses not to ever have to take it, you know? Uh, And and I'll give you an example. my, My gay friends tell me that their lives, I'm 58, their lives were brutal. Now there's a 28-year-old gay man that actually works at Skybridge, and he feels like his life has been liberating because of Mm. all the work that got done, frankly, by an older generation of gay activists, gay honesty. So I guess that's where I'm going with this.
1: Well, listen, my story is a cautionary tale, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that... I sacrificed who I was for what I did. I was never frivolous with my money, but I was frivolous with my time. I got that job at Goldman at 21. I left at 40. I'm writing this book because I don't want to be frivolous with my time anymore. I want the young generation to not be frivolous with their time anymore. Now, Going back to what we were talking earlier, is Goldman going to change? I don't know. But I want young people to demand more. And you know what, Anthony? There's a lot of different places to have a finance experience. If you're that passionate about finance, Goldman Sachs isn't the be all and end all. I want people to feel empowered to align with companies that not only do they feel passionate about what they're doing, but they can look themselves in the mirror while they're doing it and they feel good while they're doing you it. See that?
0: That is so well said. And that's what I thought. Like when they they excised me from their kingdom, when I made a few comments that they didn't like on television, I was like, guys, mm-hmm. that's silly. You should be coming to guys like me to help you improve your image. They should be coming to people like you to help them figure out this problem. Okay, I'm friends with Gretchen Carlson. I'm a supporter of Gretchen's project, okay, with Julie, This is going on everywhere. It's not just Goldman Sachs and it's not just Wall Street. This is a corporate contagion. This is going on everywhere because the structure of a corporation, weirdly, because of all the passive aggressive communication, allows for it. I can tell you this bullshit does not go on at Skybridge. Okay. I would end that bullshit in 30 seconds. Okay. And the fish thinks from the head down. Okay. The women in the firm get treated with respect. By the way, They get treated equally. So if they're not doing the job, I'm going to look at them and say, hey, you're not doing the job. I don't care what your sex organs are. You're not doing the job. Do the job.
1: And I'm sure you pay them the same, too.
0: 100%, if anything, more if they're doing the job. That's right. My my general counsel was on maternity leave when I made her a partner. And she's openly gay. She's lesbian. And she's been my partner for 15 years. And she's the best at what she does. And she's got to get paid with right. that. And, and, and by the way, that's easier to do for me because I am a 29, 30 person organization, but it's not that hard for a bigger company to do it. If they have the willingness in their culture to change, you say, right. but they're sitting around with all these lawyers and the lawyers are telling them, Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. Don't interview Jamie. Don't bring her back. Can't have an exit interview with her. Oh my God. If this stuff ever got in the press, it would be brutal for us. But the truth of the matter is, everybody knows about it anyway. It's not like, it's like you're right. getting these private messages. Ask Gretchen Carlson what it was like at Fox News. She knows. Yeah. Gretchen wrote a blurb for me. She's a very good person, and she got into a very twisted situation. And by the way, there are women at that organization that are mad at her because, oh, you're making it hard on the rest of us. We should just sit around and take it. And I don't think That's the right. world is going to change. It didn't change for the gay community by lying still and and not doing the right thing. What did I miss? What did I miss, Jamie Fiore Higgins? What did I miss?
1: I think it's really important to know that, again, women have an issue, but really everyone has an issue. Like I said, I know there are plenty of men that I have heard from. I've heard from so many Goldman men thanking me for writing the book. So I think these firms really need to start paying attention you know, the pipeline of talent and business, it happens over years, right? Over decades. And until companies really make sure it happens, I know you talk about your 30-person company. You make sure that people are being paid fairly. You take the time. And if Solomon doesn't have time too, that's fine. Get soldiers to do it. Another thing we didn't even get to, the review process at Goldman. Look into outliers, really care about the answer. And I don't think until... They really start paying attention that things are going to change. And that's really what I want for this. And I want employees to start speaking up and advocating for one another.
0: Yeah. I mean, you also write about the review process being somewhat ceremonial. Ultimately, the partner made the decision and the person got paid and the review was just in the backdrop in case there was ever an issue. So I get I get all that. I applaud you for your courage. And listen, I got a lot of friends at Goldman Sachs to this day. I like the firm in many ways. I don't like this aspect of the firm. But I'm telling you, Jamie, it's not just Goldman. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's not just in... It's not just in financial services, it's everywhere. So
1: 300 messages and counting, 300 messages and counting for me, from medicine, from small business. Listen, you only need two people to have a power dynamic. Mm -hmm. I've heard from people in small businesses, large businesses, law, medicine, finance, insurance, education. It's happening everywhere.
0: Well, I I appreciate it. You know, if you get a chance, uh, read Lessons in Chemistry, which is a-
1: I just got it from my bookstore.
0: Yeah, you got to read that book. I mean, I interviewed the author. She's a lovely, lovely woman. And she's writing about sexism and feminism in the 1960s. And I'm laughing because a lot of the stuff that Bonnie writes about, her name is Bonnie Garmus, is happening today. And and listen, if we wanna make things better, and I'm not a woke person, I understand the difference between men and women, and men and women should be able to have a discourse with each other. We don't have to have sterility in our communications, but we do know what's right and wrong. You know, there was a famous Supreme Court case. They asked Parter Stewart, a Supreme Court justice, what is the definition of pornography? And he said, I know it when I see it. You know, that's just that simple. You know when someone is a complete asshole and acting like a creepster. And you know, when someone says, hey, Jamie, you look great today. That's a nice dress that you have on. And you say, oh, thank you. And you go on and you do your job. You see what I mean?
1: Well, this reminds me of at Goldman. They always used to say when it comes to like business and how you deal with your clients, would you want what you do to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and have your mother read it? Right, exactly. And would you be happy with that behavior? So what I say is, let's take that And talk about the way we treat each other on the desk. Would you have what you say to your colleagues printed up on a dialogue, on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, give it to your mom and read it. And would you still be okay to talk to your mom after
0: she read it? Right, yeah, it's well right? said. It's well said. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, the title of the book is Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs, but it's a, it's a cautionary tale, but it's a story that's out there everywhere. It's very prevalent. I appreciate you giving us your time today.
1: And I appreciate you devoting some time to my book and
0: my story. Hearing Jamie's story, it's upsetting to me, but it's not surprising. And when I tell Jamie's story to friends at other large corporations, particularly women, the reaction is, yeah, that's incidental. Uh, It's not just at Goldman Sachs or on Wall Street. It's quite pervasive. Uh, Let's shine a light on this stuff so we can stop this nonsense. Knock it off. I would say to people who have outdoor plumbing fixtures like myself, i.e. men, knock it off. Okay, Treat the people at the workplace like they're your mom or your sister. Be polite and be respectful. There's no need to be sterilized. Of course, you can tell a woman she has a nice dress as long as you come across charming. Every woman knows the difference between charming and creepy. It's like an instant analysis, like zero one for a computer microprocessor. Just be charming and relax at work, and it'll make the workplace better. Uh, and it'll also create a greater diversity of ideas which all of us need, particularly now in this brutal economy. So now it's time to go to our star of the show, my mom. You worked as a makeup artist, right? You worked at a nail salon, right? Yes. Okay. I did.
2: And I did makeup for ten years, and I even did it for Clairol models.
0: Mm-hmm. But what
2: I do was you, very good at
0: it. Do you think it's? Uh, the times have changed to the point where a man can't flirt with a woman at, at work? I think the workplace should
2: be work and outside if you want to flirt, you flirt. But your workplace
0: should be straight. Right. So when it, when the men I'm are... I'm 86
2: f- years old, so I look at life differently. I don't think you flirt in your workplace. You flirt right. when you're on the outside, but not in your workplace. And then you're looking for trouble if you do that. All
0: right, but I think that that's right. But when you were raising me... You told me to flirt with the girls, or what was you? What did you tell me to do? Ma? What, what was your advice? My advice was. Uh, not to get
2: anyone pregnant. <laughs> You're asking me that, questions.
0: I, that was your advice. Wife, you, I
2: didn't want my children to get you, anyone pregnant because yeah. if they did get someone pregnant, then I felt as though they should marry if they were in love with them
0: or not in love with them. Right. You, you, you yes. probably don't remember this, but you told me that there was a you had a charge account at Hul- Unold's Pharmacy on Main Street and that I should use the charge account. And I didn't understand what you meant, but I think you meant you wanted me to buy rubbers there. Do you remember this So you don't remember?
2: Yes, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I think you should use protection if you're growing up and, and uh, you want to feel your oath, so to speak, which is a slang way of saying it, mm-hmm. and to make sure you don't get so impregnant. But I don't think you should hurt a girl. If, if they mm-hmm. get pregnant, I really don't. I think, right. think that if so they get gotta, pregnant, you, gotta then you to You got to keep everything out
0: them. of the workplace. If you get somebody pregnant, you got to marry them because you're Catholic. Yeah. But you better mm-hmm. not get anybody pregnant, right? That's basically your message, right? Yeah. So let me ask you this, Ma. Do you remember when I worked at Goldman Sachs? Yeah. What did you think of Goldman Sachs? Do you remember that at all or not really? Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I, I was pregnant.
0: You got a job there. Yeah, it was a good place to work. Do you remember when they yeah. told me I needed to dress better or you don't remember that?
2: Yes, well, you you were from a, a blue-collar house, and you dressed good, because I used to love clothes, so I feel at 86, I still love what I'm doing. I do have a good sense. My mother had excellent taste and my father, my father went to Wallach's and Lord Taylor's.
0: And that was all right. Well, we were, well we, we were buying the clothes at Size Sims, though. The guy told me that there was too much polyester in my suit. You remember that, or you don't remember that? Yeah,
2: well, you used to go to, uh, what the heck was that store, in America Mile? Forrestos,
0: Forrestos. Remember, for, for Restos, for Restos. remember no, that? not
2: Forrestos. It no. was
0: The um, Annex, The Annex? The Annex.
2: And they yes. had good clothes
0: there, but they weren't good enough for Goldman. Right. Well, yeah, they had polyester in them. They, the guy yelled at me. All right.
2: Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Am I off now? Because I have to
0: ask you something. You All right. right? I'm going own- to call you right back. How's that? I'll call you right back. All right. Call me right, right. back. Bye. I am Anthony Scaramucci and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me to chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter. It's also at Scaramucci on Instagram. You can text me at plus one I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think and who you'd like to see on our show next. I'll see you back here.